Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. Welcome to another podcast, uh, Joint Effort. Uh, today we have Dr. Lynn Nelson, fellowship-trained spine surgeon at DMOS. Indeed. Um, chief of spine surgery for f- the last 15 years? Oh, no, close to 25. Wow. Tw- sorry to sell you short. Uh, 25 years and current DMOS president as of January 1. Indeed. Uh, so you have a lot going on. Right. I'm going for the record be- <laughs> for the most years between presidencies. <laughs> I don't know if that's a record you want to have, but we appreciate you taking it on Thank nonetheless. You. Thank you. Um, we're going to get into lower back pain. Uh, before we do that, though, one of the unique things about yourself when I got here, you, you immediately asked a young sports guy, hey, can you help me cover uh, the, the Des Moines Buccaneers hockey team? I thought it was interesting because most spine guys want nothing to do with sports coverage. They go into spine and you know they take care of spine-related patients and they'll take care of them in clinic, but to cover a team is is different. So how you told me your kids were involved at some point. It's exactly correct. My kids were way involved in hockey. Um, years ago, we hosted a Des Moines Buccaneer player in our home. The kids really enjoyed going to games. Over the course of time, Bob Breedlove, who was then the Des Moines Buccaneers team doc, um, lateraled to me over the course of a couple of seasons. Uh, I picked it up, and quite kindly, the DMOS guys have been very good about uh, helping me cover them for a lot of years now. Yeah, it's a fun event, and the some of the most loyal fans, you know, for a mid-range hockey team that you can find. I mean, the traditions are great, and the kids are always having fun out there. And absolutely true, great fan base. It can be high-level hockey too when they have a good team to make the playoffs. And these are these kids are playing at the highest uh, level for that age group in the country. Most of the kids have Division One college rides for hockey. Um, Des Moines Buccaneers have a lot of kids in the pros. It's uh, it's uh, really good hockey. Yeah, that's impressive. And it, it usually you get to watch the game, but then every once in a while you get the trainer saying, "I have this nasty laceration, you know, anywhere on the body, and you got to go suture it up and help the kid out." You do. It ends the, up being kind of fun community service. The kids and coaches are all very appreciative of what we do, though. Absolutely. Uh, ironically, this year the derecho took out the Buck Stadium, I think, and now they're playing in the. In the well, down yeah, at Wells kid, Fargo. Kids, kids are getting the experience of playing at, uh, you know, first-class facility at Wells Fargo. Yeah, and hopefully their new arena is on for next year or the following. No, I think at least two. Okay, okay. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, that was my first experience with you, and then the second one was somehow we got to talking about water skiing in correlation with an ankle injury that you had, and uh, I had no idea you were an avid water skier, and and so, I mean, is this slalom? Is this two skis or how I mean do you, do you do it all it's just a do you have um, a team that you're on or how? mostly uh, slalom water skiing through a six ball course a uh, couple of guys my age believe it or not and I try to get out two or three nights a week during the summer six ball course is that what you said yeah, six balls what does that we, mean um, go through starting gates okay. we through six balls and exit through end gates again and do you I, register your time then is that what it's yeah the boat travels at a registered speed um, for my age group, that's 34 miles per hour. And then the rope is progressively shortened to make it more difficult per pass. Oh, yeah. so at some point you may miss the miss a pass or whatever. Well, I miss quite a few passes. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you get three or four, what, you count how many you get, and that's how you compete with other... That's exactly right. Do you register in events then, or is this just... This is just for fun. Certainly yeah. there are um, those opportunities in Iowa. We don't register. It's... Uh, 
more fun for us just to take it more casually. Right. Well, that's an interesting hobby that I don't think many people, I, I certainly don't know how to water ski, so I was kind of impressed by that. Um, lastly, the thing that interests me about you is that you work hard enough in spine surgery, you, you have a busy home life, and then you're telling me that on your weekends you're farming. Is this, is this still true? And to what extent, you know, it's interesting. How did you, you yes. grow up that way or? Sure, I grew up on a hog cattle, corn and soybean farm in North Central Iowa. Um, I came very close to farming full time. My uh, father said that he farmed so that I didn't have to. So I went to college partly uh, to appease him. Yeah. Um, I love the farm. It's a big part of what I uh, think of when I'm not doing orthopedics. Um, it's it's a great life and a great relief for me. Yeah. Do you still have the family farm uh, that, that you grew up on that you're helping out at, or, you, or is this your own farm that you're you're helping out at? Family farm plus I've added to it over the years. You have. Yeah. That's incredible. I uh, on my weekends I sit on the couch and go to my kids' sporting events, and you're doing all of that in addition to farming. So, for whatever it's worth, your uh, work ethic is pretty high. Yeah, thank um, you. All right, so let's get into lower back pain. You are the foremost expert, along with uh, Dr. Zach Reese uh, at DMOS, in regards to lower back pain. We talked to him already about neck pain. So um, with your experience, I'd like to kind of know, um, a lot of people want to know, what is normal pain and what is pain that needs to be sought out? How do you decipher that or how do you tell someone if they ask you? I'm sure you have friends call you every, every week saying, my back hurts. What do you look for when you say, hey, give it time, or hey, we need to, we need to get you in? I'd say uh, two things. <clears throat> One, the uh, duration and severity of the back pain. The vast, vast majority of back strains will resolve in a matter of a few to several days, maybe a couple weeks. And, and that would be muscular in nature? Almost always, okay. yes. And <clears throat> those um, are going to go away no matter what we do. The other type, um, so if... Conversely, if a back problem lasts longer than a couple weeks, severe back pain interferes with the activity of day living, uh, interferes with sleep and so forth, could be indicative of a more significant problem and, and need um, greater attention. The other distinction is whether, along with back pain, an individual has pain down the leg that is radicular pain. Radicular pain is, in general, more indicative of a more significant problem, which is more likely to need uh, medical care. Something we hear people call sciatic all the time. Correct. Um, and so uh, knowing that, it seems that everyone in their life will experience back pain. Is that almost a certainty? Absolutely. Okay. Um, what are some home remedies that you can consider doing? Maybe not necessarily even remedies, but what can you do preventatively to avoid having back pain throughout your life? Uh, <clears throat> lifestyle sort of things include... Um, Maintaining appropriate weight, not smoking. Tobacco users have twice the incidence of low back pain as compared to non-smokers. Any theories as to why? It's a huge, huge problem. Most likely, nicotine impacts oxygen delivery to the discs. Okay. Um, And staying physically fit generally, and perhaps more importantly, maintaining a strong core. Okay. If one picks up any magazine that has mention of back problems or back pain in it, it's all about core stabilization, which basically means maintaining strong extensor muscles and strong abdominal muscles. In addition to that, is there anything that people do that maybe is deleterious to to back 
back function over the long term? Are there things like, is running over the course of your life a risk? Is um, heavy Olympic lifting a risk? Are there things that we know that if you continue to do those over time as we age, will eventually get you? There's no suggestion that running in moderation is problematic for back health over time. Uh, Ultramarathon runners, of course, and those that are at the extremes um, probably are experiencing some problems to their back in doing so. Uh, the main problem from an activity standpoint with backs is loading the discs. The discs are loaded most with a combination of lifting, twisting, and bending. Um, squats, as an example, load the discs hugely. Uh, I wish they weren't a very prominent part of most programs, uh, weightlifting programs. Okay. When you say disc, I think um, for a lot of people it would be nice to explain what that means. So we have five lumbar vertebrae, and that primarily make up your lower you know, spine, essentially, and then attach into your sacrum um, and your pelvis. When you say disc, what makes the disc unique, different from the bony sure. vertebrae? The disc is... Um, <clears throat> The structure that sits between the vertebral bodies, the disc is um, hydri, excuse me, highly hydrophilic, meaning high water content at center portion that is in turn compressible to absorb load. So the center part of the disc has this compressive uh, substance, while the outside has these tough concentric rings, which maintain the structural support of the vertebrae above and below, and contain that disc material that I just described within the center of it. So when someone injuries injures their disc or you hear bulging disc or herniated disc they have to tear through that annular portion for it to bulge out for part of the disc material to bulge out into the canal is that the correct way of thinking about it it is um, either a tear discrete tear or it can be over the course of some distance a gradual weakening so that it appears more of a bulge um, with a tear one is more likely to have an extruded disc fragment that is a portion of that center disc material extends outside the disc space to the point where it separates from it more. Okay. And is it more the disc itself tearing that causes pain, or is it the compression on the spinal cord where the disc is now being pushed out that causes the pain people are experiencing? It's both in that <clears throat> a disc herniation causing impingement of nerve root causes pain down that leg where that nerve root travels. Okay. The annulus, which is again is the covering over the disc, is highly um, innervated in that has tons of nerve endings in it. So a tear in the annulus itself can be very painful in regards to predominantly back pain rather than radicular pain down one's leg. So how is it that we hear, okay, give some back pain or radicular pain a couple months to get better? It, how is it that you can go back to normal after you've had a disc tear or herniate? <laughs> As, as a, most any other structure in the body, the annulus in many cases will heal. Okay. In some cases, one's body, actually a fairly high percent of cases, one's body will resorb or take up at least a portion of that disc material to the point where an MRI scan, for example, may relatively normalize, which in turn, of course, correlates with the patient uh, doing well from a clinical standpoint. So if I'm your patient and I have pain that shoots down my leg, um, let's say it goes to the bottom of my foot. Um, it's been going on for three months. Uh, I have no weakness at all though, and, and I can feel everything in my leg. Um, and I have a herniated disc. You know, how do you decipher between the person that you know, is best in your hands to operate on 
versus give it more time, try an epidural and things like that? Really good question. The uh, best studies suggest that as unpleasant as pain and numbness are from a herniated disc, they're not indicative of ongoing nerve damage or injury. Okay. Weakness or functional loss, on the other hand, is more indicative of nerve injury. So we're more aggressive, if you will, in those patients who have weakness or functional loss. It certainly can be true that pain of itself can warrant surgical treatment, but again, less um, required, if you will, as compared to a neurologic problem. And how, why does it become more of an urgent scenario when it's a neurologic problem? I guess what I'm asking is, in your mind, how long do you have to get to that until you're maybe not reversing these changes and just trying to keep them where they're at and have they, where they know they have neurologic compromise for good? Assuming it's not severe weakness, studies suggest that an individual that has weakness from a disc herniation can be treated non-operatively for perhaps 12 weeks without significantly increasing the risk of that strength not returning once it ultimately is addressed. That doesn't apply in an, in an individual with severe weakness. That's more mild weakness, if you will. Okay. And so if you determine, hey, this you're weak, you know, your, your, your foot um, dorsiflexion is weak, um, you know, we need to do surgery. It's a single level disc herniation. Describe for me how that goes. How, how does, you know, what do you tell your patients, you know, surgically what you're going to do and what the recovery looks like in there? Sure. It's a uh, posterior procedure that is from behind, if you will, uh, midline vertical incision for a one level um, discectomy in a relatively small patient. Incision typically is less than uh, two inches long, in some cases no more than an inch. Uh, the procedure typically takes no more than an hour or so, again, in the scenario that you described. We do a fair number of those patients as outpatients. Likewise, a uh, fair number stay one night in the hospital. That depends largely on patient factors for general health, support at home, um, simply how they do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Post-operatively, to get back to full activities is basically 12 weeks. There's some rationale for that based on other soft tissue studies. We believe that the annulus heals at a relatively slow rate and reaches perhaps 90% of the strength it's gonna reach after 12 weeks. That's the rationale to restrict particularly vigorous activities for that time period. The primary reason to restrict activities is to lessen the risk of a recurrent disc herniation. In many cases- What's the chances of that typically? What are the rates? Across the board, it's 15%. Okay. In, on no, average all, for most all of yes. Okay. Highest in uh, young, active females. So those are the three strikes, if you will. Okay. Um, and if that happens, do you, is it another discectomy in a lot of circumstances, or do you have to move on to something else like a fusion, or how, it, do, you, how do you decipher that? Right. Uh, as a general rule, it's treated the same fashion as a primary okay. uh, disc herniation. If an individual has is requiring surgery for the third disc herniation at that level, the general recommendation is to do a fusion rather than just a repeat discectomy. It's been proven to be a bad disc, if you will, with a very high likelihood of continued recurrent disc herniation, so in that case, a fusion is done. With a fusion, that disc segment is immobilized, that is no longer moved, so it's really not loaded anymore, therefore, shouldn't herniate again. What, what's the bad news for patients that herniate their disc, either they have surgery or they don't, uh, 
do you know that natural history says they're probably going to get arthritis at that level at some point in their lives? Is that likely? Most patients who have disc herniations have at least some degree of underlying degenerative changes, which causes the annulus to weaken somewhat. Thus, the annular tear, annular bulge allows the disc herniation to occur. The other side of that coin is, with those underlying degenerative changes, that individual is at more risk of back problems later on with or without surgical treatment. Okay. And I know that, so in the cervical spine, it's been amazing to see the evolution in spine surgery just from an outside observer, you know, disc replacements becoming essentially mainstream and a good solution for a lot of people. Are we there in the lumbar spine with disc replacements yet? We're not, but in um, a, a disc, excuse me, a lumbar disc replacement would be done in place of a fusion in a certain select group of patients. It wouldn't be done for a patient with a simple disc herniation. That individual would have to have other underlying spine problems, which would cause a need for a fusion rather than just a discectomy. Okay, understood. So let's move on from the acute, I think we understand now the acute disc herniation and, and what causes the pain and, and how we treat that. Um, I guess before we move on, a real quick question. You hear a lot of people, do they have to, do most of them get an epidural before you'll do surgery on them in your mind? Is that a, if they don't have any neurological issues, is that something you'd like to see them fail before they have surgery or how do you address that with them? The vast majority of patients undergoing discectomy have had epidural steroid injections and have, and have failed to respond to them. It's not required, but again, the vast majority of patients want to make certain that an epidural steroid injection wasn't adequate, if you will, such that they perhaps wouldn't have needed surgery. And do you have people ask you, you know, what is a steroid, what is its role here? You know, do they think it's gonna heal the disc or is it just for, to get rid of the acute you know, phase of pain, and then once that happens, the body's healed, subsequently healed. Um, is it the latter of those two? Most patients do ask, and it is the latter of those two. The epidural steroid injections don't change the underlying disc herniation process. They could potentially help a ton by decreasing the inflammation swelling of the nerve root, if you will. Okay. So let's move on to chronic back pain. Um, how do you address that differently? Um, uh, I guess you could look at it as there's probably chronic back pain and then there's back pain causing kind of stenosis or compression on the nerve roots. Um, how do you treat someone who comes in and just has lower back pain? Uh, there's no pain on the legs. There's no neurologic uh, uh, dysfunction. They've optimized everything they can uh, in terms of their core. They're in good shape. They don't smoke. And they clearly have uh, one of their disc heights is uh, collapsed down a little bit and they have some arthritic changes that let's say L4, L5, what can you do for that patient? The vast majority of patients with the scenario you described um, are not offered surgical treatment. There is a subset though of those with single level degenerative disc disease who can do very well with a single level fusion. Um, exactly the right characteristics perhaps are outside the scope of this conversation. Mm -hmm. I just emphasize that there's a small subset who are good, good candidates. Right. I find that that's the interesting thing about spine surgery is that you guys have all these techniques, but there are certain things that you are smart enough to know that I'm not going to operate on you because it's not necessarily going to change how you feel. 
Um, but when, when you get into the situation where someone needs a laminectomy where you're taking away a little bone in the back, and can you kind of walk us through what those symptoms are like and how they might be candidates for a procedure that could improve them? Sure. Um, the first set of patients we talked about were the, just a single level discectomy. Those patients don't need a full laminectomy. I mean, ectomy means removal of, so laminectomy means removal of the entire lamina, if you will. And that's the back part of the Correct. That's vertebrae? A, exactly. That's the flat part, if you will. The Protects back the, the spinal canal. The spinal from, canal from posterior from behind. So in a simple discectomy, one doesn't need to perform a full laminectomy. A laminectomy, however, is a very commonly performed procedure in a patient with spinal stenosis from wear and tear type degenerative changes. Those wear and tear type degenerative changes typically, of course, involve both sides, of the, you know, both the right and left of midline. And therefore, since the bone is part of the offending um, material causing impingement, that has to be removed as part of the procedure. And you don't have to put any bone back. Correct. Okay. And so what's that patient present to you like? How is that different than the disc herniation? Yeah, the, the typical spinal stenosis patient has a symptom complex called neurogenic claudication, which means lower extremity pain, numbness, and tingling that's brought on by standing and walking and relieved by sitting and lying. Okay. One can think of that as when one is active doing things, standing and walking, those nerve roots are working hard, if you will, send a lot of impulses back and forth, and the pinch causes impingement sorry, causes delay of those. Whereas if a person is relatively quiescent, nerves are, aren't working very hard, so the pinch doesn't cause significant trouble. Okay. Is the old adage like leaning against the shopping cart can relieve that You've like versus standing up? Is that? It's, it's, it's very real. When one <clears throat> bends forward a bit, ever so slightly, open up the neural foramen. So leaning over a shopping cart or similar device absolutely can provide okay. short-term relief. How many levels can you do a laminectomy at before you worry maybe you're destabilizing some component of the spine? Right. It's not so much the number of levels as much as the width of the laminectomy necessary. We know from several studies how much lamina, how much medial facet, if you will, we can remove without undue risk of a laminectomy. We sometimes, in cases with congenital stenosis, that is, those individuals have a small spinal canal and thus many, many different levels involved, we'll have to do, well, just that many, many levels. Mm -hmm. And as long as we can keep that from being too wide, if you will, we're not likely to cause an instability. Okay. And what are your expectations for someone who has an acute disc that you operate on? Are you expecting them uh, in the best case scenario at 12 weeks to basically be back to normal in terms of how they feel and make a full recovery? Yes. The, the, <clears throat> The healthy, motivated patient with a single level discectomy should be able to get back to basically all activities. And to the contrary, what do you tell your patients that have uh, neurogenic claudication or stenosis that, you know, what does their recovery look like? Um, can they get rid of that numbness and tingling for good? Um, or that should they expect that there's still some, you know, consequence of what was going on? But, you know, how do you, I guess, how do you quantify the relief for them before surgery? Really good question. Um, I tell patients that no matter what we do, you know, it's not quite as good as God's original equipment. The goal is to be sniffly better. In most patients with neurogenic claudication, their um, activity tolerance level is significantly improved. At the same time, you know, in no way does that surgery make them 18 again. Okay. 
Um, can they get back to things they want to do? Can they, if they like the excessive, if they like to walk a lot, if they, or do you tell them, hey, let's keep things more in moderation now? Um, is there an increased risk of things recurring or bone regrowth or anything like that? No, we encourage <clears throat> individuals within reason to be active. Um, you know, contact sports, crazy sort of things. Certainly, they shouldn't do. However, recreational running, golfing, tennis, skiing hiking biking all those things are encouraged to get back to doing having said that you know with the laminectomy there's still motion so over the course of time the stenosis can recur it usually takes many years for that to occur and if it does we can potentially address it with a laminectomy again okay and no one will ever want you know no one wants to talk about potential risks but the spine surgery inherently has you know, the highest risks in orthopedics. You're working around the spinal cord. And so can you walk a patient through the, the things that you do on the day of surgery that, you know, minimize their uh, uh, exposure to those risks, how you use image guidance to look at the level, um, patient positioning and things like that, that we kind of often forget. But tell us how a day goes for you and how meticulous right. you are about that. Right, Ex excellent point. Patients are all consoled about the risks of surgery, alternatives of surgery, benefits of surgery. In the OR, the patients, say going under, undergoing a laminectomy, go to sleep in a supine position that is face up. They're turned um, with multiple persons present face down onto a table. We make certain that all pressure points are well padded, their uh, that their abdomen, abdominal region isn't compressed. Um, we're very meticulous about positioning. The patient's asleep and you know can't protect themselves. Um, certainly as part of the surgery, we use imaging as necessary to localize a level to limit the exposure to only what is necessary to accomplish. Um, it's a matter largely of, of being very meticulous with uh, decompression. As you described, uh, we're operating the bottom part of the spinal cord, if you will. We're removing bone that by bone, soft tissue, disc material, whatever the case may be, that, that by definition is causing impingement or else we wouldn't be there. So it's a matter of uh, being meticulous, as cautious and slow as necessary to, to accomplish the yeah. goal. Do you, are, do you use loops when you operate? I do. Um, I use loops that magnify um, objects three and a half times. Uh, Dr. Reese does the same. Yep. Um, last question, because this is, yeah, we could go on and on, but over the next five to 10 years, what, what is your pr prediction as the biggest change in spine surgery? Where are things going that you never would have thought it would happen 20, 30 years ago. What's the next big thing in, in spine surgery? I think it probably is continuation of less invasive procedures done better. Uh, there's a lot of excitement toward robotic use of spine in orthopedics. Um, How does that work? Is that using a CT scan to help guide your laminectomy or, or your implants put it in a certain? Largely, that's exactly correct. Okay. Um, CT guidance uh, to accomplish those things. Uh, there's some really neat um, technology on the horizon that may allow performance of a laminectomy by a robot. In 2021, robots can assist with pedicle screw placement. They're in no way able at this, ready at this point to do laminectomies. 
whether that will be five years, ten years, or more, I don't know. But it's it's really pretty cool technology. Yeah, and you could probably put pedicle screws in your sleep, but it's you know it's uh, to have that secondhand check wouldn't be a terrible thing either. No, and and it's uh, in some cases the altered anatomy uh, cases deformity for you need the yeah deformity previous surgery whatever the case may be. Well, fantastic. This is very interesting. I think uh, everyone knows a little bit more about lower back pain now and different treatments. And thanks so much for coming on. And sorry for offending you about being 15 years chief. Now I know you're 25. <laughs> no, no. Thanks for the opportunity. Yep. Appreciate got it. it. Thanks for listening to Joint Effort, a podcast from Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. If you have questions about this podcast and wish to schedule an appointment with the surgeon, call 515 224 1414 or visit dmos.com.